Welcome again to Project 38 from Washington Technology. This is our podcast that looks at today's state of the federal market and how it is shaping up for tomorrow. I'm Ross Wilkers, Senior Staff Writer. What really does make a company win or lose in the government contracting market? And just as importantly, what are some commonly held beliefs that do have a ring of truth in them, but can lead businesses down the wrong path? Here to help us answer those big questions is Brian Lindholm, founder and managing principal of market and competitive intelligence company, Fed Savvy Strategies. In starting our conversation, I had to ask Brian how much of his job is seeing the same actions and many times mistakes repeated all across the industry. Quite a lot, not by design, but just sort of when you immerse yourself into a topic, you're going to get exposed to that. And when you've done this for a long time, you see the cycles happen. Um, the cycles of M&A binge drinking, the cycles of companies swinging pendulums in terms of what they offer and how they go to market. It, it really is, if you were to get into a time machine and go back and forth, if you go enough years, you know, let's say three or four or five years and skip, you'll see, it's like, or even 10, you'll see a repeat. It happens constantly. We're not nearly as smart as we think we are. We're not nearly as creative as we think we are. We will do some of the same, what I'll call, I'll borrow the, the phrase from the movie, it was uh, Tales of the Galactically Stupid uh, will repeat themselves on a routine. I think there's a Jeremy Maguire one. I think that's where the movie came from. But yeah, it was a Tales of the Galactically Stupid happen on a routine basis. Sometimes very smart moves, but in many cases, not so much. So what does that boil down to when companies just do the same thing over and over again and expect different results? Is it stubbornness, something else? I don't, I don't know if it's stubbornness. I think it's, it's really more of a function of not warning from one's errors. I and mean, that's what it often comes down to, is, is a failure to... And it's interesting when I talk with uh, my colleagues at big businesses, and I keep professional friends out there, and we chat about what's happening. And it's amazing how much thirst for knowledge companies have. They want. I mean, they're quite, I've got a business that really leverages knowledge and knowledge development and analysis. So knowledge is our fuel for our engine that makes us go. But I'm mystified by how short-term memories will dictate and then the, a lack of infrastructure and a lack of discipline to learn from one's mistakes. And then you're, if you don't learn from it, you don't really sit tight and stay the course and be disciplined, you're going to keep doing the same dumb things, um, which is part of what we've observed in terms of how we'll call these deadly sins and proposals and other fallacies that I just, I sit there, I do through black hats and go, I heard that same line over and over again. And there's no happy ending for it. Don't same sake. Let's make sure we learn from our errors uh, because people just aren't often, some are just not disciplined to learn from that. It's hard. It's hard to be disciplined. It's hard to learn from your mistakes. We'll get into the deadly sins in the second half of our conversation. But when we were trading sure. notes about you know, what was on my mind and what was on your mind, you shared with me about different IT domains and how experience really does vary wildly across them, whether that be cyber, cloud computing, application development, you name it. I mean, that's, we probably all repeat the fallacy as IT being this narrow channel, when in fact, it's several different things. Yeah, it very much is. I mean, they're, they're not, we throw these terms around. I think many people don't even understand what they really mean. 
but what wins and what loses and what how you define those are radically different things. It's an easy thing to start talking about well, what is enterprise IT? What the hell does that even mean? There's any number of facets of IT services for companies that what they deliver. Some may be as narrowly defined as running a service desk. Some may be very broadly defined from network engineering to doing security to cloud migration. It's it's just, it's just a big mushy pile. So what caution should that present to companies when they're pursuing that opportunity in IT, whether that be one of these big, large managed service enterprise IT jobs of which there really aren't that many, or perhaps something sure. that's more specialized and narrow focused? Well, I, I think um, and there's a lot of things, obviously, you got to go through to qualify something to get fit or not. I mean, what's the nature of the work? Is there a specific technology or tech stack that the agency's already invested heavily in? Plenty of companies will make mistakes where they start trying to change the whole tech stack. What are you doing? If the agency is invested in service now, you go in there with something that's completely different, you're doing so at your own peril. Or you do better yet, what's often fun, I see, where companies will propose their unique IP and often where they, they fail to make the connection and then they kind of fast forward, they fail to win is because they're not making the convincing case of what they have to offer themselves actually is complementary and not just radically changing things. That's risk. Risk is bad. Risk leads to weaknesses and that leads to losses. And expecting that you think you're going to blow them away with your cool new whiz-bang toy, more often than not, you're not going to get inject risk in the mind of the agency. And to qualify these deals, What's the, what's the mantra for the agency? Do they see this as, I'm going to turn the keys over to you like in a managed services environment? Or am I going to say, no, I just need people. You are going to give me people, nothing else. It's like when I go, like, go through my car buying experience. I got a salesman trying to say, oh, you get this package, this package, this package. Dude, I want four wheels, I want good mileage, and reasonably good safety. That's it. Those are my criteria. So it's, it's the try to pushing your unique, cool IP or product that is not going to fit the requirements and frankly, just generates risk to test that up front is, is really pretty critical. I uh, see too often they'll push tools that that sounds great, but then you're just being vendor lock-in and there's no way I, the agency, I'm going to agree to that. So you're out of your mind. Goodbye. And then that creates a lot of other work that companies have to do if they introduce a new toy or a new widget agency customer A looks at it and goes, what's this? I've never seen this before. So in a sense, maybe that requires more work on the companies. Yeah, I mean, they, they have to be on the pre-sales process, but also to actually in the proposal itself is to very clearly and carefully outline why is this good and why is this not a risk? Um, and not to assume that it will be obvious. I mean, it's the same thing I beat into the heads of my own analysts where do not think that this is Miss Cleo and they could read a crystal ball and read your mind. The same thing in, in how companies do these things. Is it seems, oh yeah, it'll be obvious, it's just table stakes stuff. No, in fact, it is not. I've seen companies win or lose just because they failed to explain or they did a brilliant job of explaining the merits of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and why it's so wonderful and magnificent, but they made the convincing argument. Uh, that's tricky. And, and how some customers... They really do want to see some cool, innovative stuff. And some just go, yeah, I'm not willing to pay for that. Like me, I'm a cheap guy. I'm not going to pay a big bucket of money for anything. 
I want a couple of benefits. Okay, I'm convinced. Is it within my budget? I'm good, right? It's a different kind of buy. And that's understanding that customer environment and frankly, what the agency's appetite for risk is. Some have allergic reactions to it. Some, they're willing to take the plunge with you. If you can explain that it's a good plunge, they'll be willing to listen to you. But that's just something you, that, that the capture teams really have to work hard to assess. How do I dial that up to 100% and go in with some really cool stuff? Or how do I dial that down to kind of talking someone off the ledge? Just breathe deeply, calm down. It's going to be okay. And the warm blanket that's going to make you feel warm and comfy. I'm going to give you a couple things here that might get you excited, but for the most part, stay the course. This market that I cover and you work in, almost every day there's a new buzzword for everything. And you hit on one earlier when you're talking about proposal and capture teams saying, oh, that's just table stakes. Right? Right. So when we talk about that phrase, table stakes, what are we talking about? Yeah, table stakes, this comes up in my black hats constantly. Oh, it's just table stakes. Table stakes meaning that's that's just what it takes to get to the table, right? This is kind of your buy-in. If you can't do this, you're not even going to make the basic data select. You want to be taken seriously. You'll be ushered out of that competition so fast your head will spin. So you don't have these basic quals that are done. But the funny thing about table stakes is yeah, it might be table stakes, but it goes back to my brief and uh, maybe snarky comment around the description of peanut butter and jelly. Nothing exciting about it. Just PB&J. It's all it is. But I'll tell you what, it's interesting when you look at evaluations when something everyone thinks is table stakes, but someone does a magnificent job of describing the merits of that peanut butter and jelly sandwich and how wonderful it is, how fresh the bread is, how incredibly fine and well-refined that peanut butter is. And the jams are the finest jams that have ever been made. They go, wow, that really is amazing. But that takes table stakes from being just table stakes to differentiate. And it could make table stakes for other ones where they could have gotten to points, they fail. So that's, you know, table stakes is just what everyone takes for granted is basic. But like anything else in life, you can't think even the most basic things for granted. There is a real concept of table stakes mm-hmm. that it exists. I mean, that I don't think we're saying in this conversation that it doesn't exist. It truly does. However, when we repeat phrases like that, it may cause us to jump to other conclusions and say, oh, it means this, it means this, it means this. And I think what you're trying to say is, well, let's take a step back. Let's actually think about how we're going to tell a story to the agency of what my company can do for them. Right. I think another psychological impact when someone starts dismissing something as table stakes is you know, psychologically, they almost desensitize themselves to the importance of ensuring that they make that point to be compelling and clear. They take for granted that, again, the evaluator is Miss Cleo reading the crystal ball, and they can see everything as clearly as you think they would take for granted. Sometimes that happens as a matter of, let's say, pay limitations. Some of these proposals are increasingly outrageously short, so you have almost no time or real, real estate space to make your case. So you have to you have to make some decisions. You may say, well, this is table stakes. We're not going to bother to get into that. No, okay. But there's a risk, right? There's a risk you're, you're engaging in. Uh, and then the table stakes psychology leads someone to ignore something where they actually could get some real strength, but they failed to leverage what could be a, a nuanced strength about their own offering. Or at least open the door for someone else to get a strength that ultimately begins to erode at your own chance to win. One of the other subjects of our notes, and this made me laugh 
as a journalist, what you mentioned about rumor and intelligence or what oh. people often refer to as rumor. Yes. Trust me when I say this, it's coming from a business journalist. Rumor is not everything. And Brian, in his note, he says, rumor leads to bad decisions. Learning takes time. And so does intelligence gathering. Expound upon that. Yeah, you know, um, and this is something that I learned over time. You know, when I engage with someone, let's say doing a blackout view or something similar to that, I do get greeted with great suspicion. Oh, it's not one of these. It's a waste of time. Yeah, it can be. But like anything else is what you put into it, what you get out of it. And, and rumint is where it's like this playing the telephone game. We're all we're, we're humans. We're very tribal creatures. And, and frankly, as tribal creatures, we tend to like Brian told Ross. And then Ross told his friend something. And then he, and his friend, and then it's sort of it creates like a life of its own. It's almost like the same garbage you'll see on some platform like Facebook. That just like where is this garbage coming from? Is there some sort of factual basis to this? And when when companies are doing the rumen part and they're not really forcing themselves to be disciplined with let's say structured exercises or structured analytical techniques that I know we use and, and others do use. It leads you down the path to simply base all your decisions on base of what you heard from Bobby and Jane and Sally and whoever. It's not great. This also ties into, do I have objective intelligence gathering? Do I have, you know, like we follow the same process that's the general process in the intelligence community. Create a model, do collection, do analysis, then production. And we use that to try to keep the, the intelligence we gather clean and objective. Can we verify a credible source? And Rumint, what's the credible source? Well, Bob said this. Where'd Bob get it from? I don't know. Hmm. Kind of leads me to believe uh, maybe Bob's a smart guy, but we're all subject to biases and probably putting too much weight into a single source. I'm going to be very suspect if I can't follow the logic and follow the rational thought to how a conclusion was drawn. I'm not going to put a lot of weight into it, but unfortunately, this is what often happens, especially you know, in informal ways of doing decisions. Words of wisdom advice to continually test that intelligence and information. Combating rumen, I mean, often you got to be mindful about what might be the bias that person happened or came up with whatever they came up with. And frankly, I am a fan, even though it might sound very nerdy, and it is very nerdy, let's be honest about it doing structured analytical techniques or doing structured discussions where the structure is intended to try to identify and squeeze out those biases that lead to bad rumors coming into you know, decisions. It, it works and, and often requires somewhat of a cynical, skeptical person to lead those exercises um, to make sure that you're really questioning what you're doing. Because um, otherwise, I see something and, and maybe someone just believes me because it's me. They don't question me. They should question. Absolutely. Where the hell did that come from, Brian? What kind of nonsense are you making up now? Good. Question me. But it's, sometimes it's very uncomfortable for someone to question someone else to question the, val the validity and credibility of what they just said. Where did that come from? They should. I've had clients who are like, where did that information come from? I'll tell them. Here's my sources. Don't believe me. Think I'm a total liar. With all the best intentions. But... That the willingness to question others in a professional manner is key to make sure that we can keep ourselves in check too. It, it's doable, but it, it's not always comfortable to basically insinuate someone else may not know what the hell they're talking about. And those people are not comfortable doing that. They're uncomfortable with some 
I'd say, professional confrontation. Which are sometimes not always fun for any of us that have no. worked in a business. No, they're not. I mean, it's um, if you have a rapport with someone or you develop a rapport, it becomes much more easy to do that because you know there's already a, a mutual level of respect. And it's not you're not assaulting the person, you're looking at the topic. When you don't have that rapport, it becomes very difficult to do so unless you're maybe at the attitude you just don't care. I'm going to question everything because that's what I do. But I will tell you the ones who are more objective, the ones, and there's a reason why some companies out there are generally more successful because they embrace this. They embrace being that sort of tension. If they're all going to sing along doing the group thing thing, they're going to get crushed. And the ones who are willing to be more objective are simply going to roast marshmallows over the open fire of their losses and their burned BNP. It's worth it to call the questions. And sometimes you do an outside source to come in and, and be that objective source, but you can do it yourself too. It, it does require some discipline and willingness to be uncomfortable, essentially questioning the, the validity of someone else's statements. So the deadly sins of proposals, that was your team's exercise in asking some hard questions about the overall business development and capture process. Yeah. Is that a fair reading? It's funny because you know, it's something that has always been of interest to the team here, to satisfy my interest too, of what really wins? What really loses? There's a lot of, um, I think, commonly held beliefs. And the phrase that always kills me that I do the teenage eye roll is, we're going to write a decent proposal and bid low. Oh, God. Couldn't be more false. It's a belief. In some cases, an agency does evaluate along those lines where it becomes the differentiators are so novel that it does come down to a price shootout. But in bigger, more complex bids, it's not that simple. In fact, very often, the low-priced bidder does not win. They are the loser in many cases because of a variety of reasons. And to dive into and look at something as rich as the ever-exciting GAO protest docket, just to do some comparative analysis of why did company A win in this situation versus company B, and to begin to decipher that is actually very enlightening because it shows you let's say, pricing thresholds for agencies. It shows you what different agencies tend to like or dislike, and also just shows you what we'll call these sort of common sins. And there's always this belief of, oh, yeah, well, these big companies like a Lidos or a GDIT or SAC won't make mistakes. False. They, like everybody else, are mortals. They put on their pants one leg at a time, and you see some of the mistakes that all the big guys make, and you just have these facepalm moments of how did you pull that off? What were you thinking? Because they're humans, and humans are going to screw up. And sometimes they screw up on a routine basis. But it was an interesting journey to go in and look at some real trends. And there were definitely some real trends that kept coming up of why companies were getting downgraded and ultimately losing. In the show notes, and when we post this episode to our website, we're going to link to the articles on the Deadly Sins and the Achilles Heel one. But let me just amplify something on the bid protest thing, because we sure. cover those also at Washington sure. Technology. My editor's a specialist at reading those. What those reports do a good job of, it's not just the individual decision itself, the source selection, excuse mm -hmm. me, by the agency. GAO does a good job of is they also have a lot of cross-references and footnotes that refer to past decisions where companies have raised similar issues on similar 
procurements and probably often found the same result to touch on how we started this. But there is a history behind that that they illustrate in there. So when in reading these decisions, it's not just looking at one particular procurement in a vacuum. Right. It's also, I mean, it's not just looking at a procurement in a vacuum. As you start to string them together, look at on one side of the coin, what does TSA or Ditcher or whoever tend to do? Because if you look at enough of them, you'll begin to see a pattern of how they actually operate. Conversely, looking at specific businesses, you can be, actually really begin to strain together, well, where do they tend to shine? And where do they tend to fail? It's, it's a remarkable trend line. It's not always easy to divine those trend lines, but those trend lines are there. If you look hard enough, you will find them. Uh, where this is where we kind of came with that blog series of looking at specific uh, weaknesses that we get attributed to companies that would ultimately lead to their, their loss. It was a pretty fascinating experiment. As we gather here for this discussion, what's the one deadly sin you would say that just annoys the heck out of you more than any other as we're recording? I think the biggest deadly sin, frankly, is not people doing the homework on how their targeted agency actually does their evaluations. Because they're not all the same. It's not all just a pure light, low price shootout. Can you be competent? I mean, there was certainly a, an era we went to not that long ago where it was LPCA was the in vogue way of doing things, which did devolve into that. Uh, it almost didn't matter. You need to be a C-plus student and be cheap. But that's simply not the case. Some agencies are like that. But to go after a customer not really do it like a trend analysis on how they really evaluate, to me, you're losing money. You're leaving money on the table. Now, someone might know that somewhat intuitively. But even if you think you know, at least do the due diligence on it to confirm that are you right or are you not? Maybe you're wrong. Maybe your small little sample of experience is not representative of the agency and how they evaluate. That really is the biggest sin. And that should be something that's done early on in the capture phase or pursuit phase, somewhere in there. Okay, let's make sure that, because ultimately that should influence your solution. If you're going to talk about, let's say, for example, in that, Let's say some agency, like TSA is a great example, I'll pick on them again. When you tinker with staffing, they really, really do not like that. Do not start cutting our staff. Don't do that. So they go, I'm going to go in there, green the workforce, I'm going to cut the staff by 20%. We'll look at all these great cost savings. As you're saying, you know, some like the old Charlie Brown cartoons where you say, I'm going to cut staff. Then from there, it's just waka, 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 as, as they're in full freakout mode. What are you doing? You're creating risk. That's a major weakness. You're not awardable. You're gone. If they don't like that, don't do it. Or at least talk with them long in advance to sell them on it well in advance in that capture phase, begin to talk them down off the ledge. But it's some sort of, but the big issue there is not understanding how to evaluate and then getting into specific pitfalls that they ultimately they will ding you on that they really dislike so that that's I mean that right there is the biggest 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 sin was just an example of a i guess i'll call a subset of this a, a sin that's underneath that layer of which there were six seven you could talk about sins all day long but there were some things that consistently stood out and along with the staffing part right cutting staffs yeah, be careful about that. But the bigger part is, is interesting when you make your staffing arguments or any argument and it doesn't connect to your, your BOE, your basis specimen. 
So I say one thing, but then my rationalization behind the pricing and all that doesn't align. I mean, more often than not, that's going to be your, it's going to be your kryptonite. They're reading this. Okay. You say this, but your justification and how you reason this out doesn't make any sense. They're not connected. So somewhere there's a breakdown. The logic doesn't check out. Just like if you're checking, you know, your own work, I've come to this conclusion. Do my facts support my conclusion? If they don't, something happened along the way that went off the rails. That happens constantly. And the other thing that happens, you'd be surprised with some of the large SIs out there, won't name names, they'll propose personnel that actually don't even meet requirements. Do they assume their evaluators are asleep? Do they assume, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. Sure, no big deal. No, you get tossed out. What the hell are you doing? Or they just don't bother to vet. You get the C-plus team who's doing the proposal. They're just sort of, I've got a human here. They draw a breath. Put them in there. We'll be fine. They won't be that rigorous on it. You're basically saying, please, please take me out of competition. Please, I'm begging you. Disqualify me because I can't read instructions. It's not that hard. Uh, or, or better yet, this actually ties to Black Hat, too, is the obsession with past performance. The religious obsession about past performance, especially for incumbents, they're the worst. Oh, yeah. No one else can do this work. I'm a special little snowflake. Dude, no, you're not. You are 100% beatable. And stop leaning on your past glory of how wonderful you think you were. Because guess what? The customer's going to ask. And very often, by the way, past performance is not a major evaluation criteria. If at all, it might just be corporate experience. Not the same thing. But the past performance obsession of look at all the cool stuff we did for the last five years it's great what about the next five years how do you adapt it how do you get ready for the next thing um and booze they lost on a recompete they should have been there it's over at ditra the cooperative threat reduction program because they mostly talked about their past course but yeah we'll be fine we did the stuff before we did this stuff before we did this stuff before then Nova stuck in there and said nope <laughs> my win not yours but that's a, a typical sin that happens and frankly, just the going back to the table stakes thing, right? So failing to connect requirements to your solution and expounding upon the benefits, even if you think it's obvious, it's not obvious. Uh, or, or just thinking that you're going to be, the price is going to win the day. Uh, it's not going to necessarily. Uh, some customers are willing to, to go ahead and pay a premium. Uh, SAC within one cloud one, then versus Lidos, mono a mono. They crushed Lidos badly. I think they were, I think of how many were millions of dollars they were more, but they beat them soundly on technical. And the Air Force was happy to pay a price premium for that. Sounds good. Someone there offered, were thinking, well, we'll just be competent, we'll, we'll bid low. When? No, you lost $700 million, my friend. Congratulations. Because you thought you could win on just being okay and being priced low. That becomes more exacerbated as you go up higher and higher uh, level procurements in terms of dollar values. It becomes less of a price you got, more about what you can offer. Recompetes start on day one that you actually transition the contract. True? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. It's interesting being the incumbent because, yes, you do get inside knowledge if you're paying attention, at least. And frankly, you can't escape your own sins. You can't. I mean, if I'm in a challenger, here's the reality that could BS to some degree. Because it's, it's a bit more difficult for someone to verify what I'm saying is true or not. If I can make a compelling argument, some companies out there who shall remain nameless are masters of BSRA. 
really good at it. Some not so great, but if you're the incumbent, there's no hiding from the skeleton in your closet unless the evaluators are comatose and they don't know anything about you. So, so yeah, that becomes a very real thing. Even then, even if you maybe aren't doing so hot as the incumbent, I've seen incumbents win with multiple cure notices. It's kind of a, what the hell, over? How do you, but it reinforces that the past performance part of an evaluation is relatively minor, especially in larger bids when it's not just commoditized services. So the waiting in capture team's mind about that, especially at the incumbent, the number of times I've heard that, oh, no one else can do this work. Were you the incumbent from the time you exited the womb? Were you born into this world and then you got word this contract? No, you took it from someone else. Come on, man. Get over yourself. You're not that cool. And the evaluations are structured in a manner more and more that the past performance is not as much of an issue. So we can't keep anchoring ourselves the past performance is going to win them all. It really is. As part of every good and well-run business's approach to continuously reevaluating themselves and finding the weakest link, your words of wisdom, advice for companies that are looking for that weakest link, or as you called it in an opinion article for us, can you spot the Achilles heel? Either using some external source or some trusted internal source to run you through the ringer and to be, I wouldn't say abusive, but to be very cynical and challenging, not believe your own story. This is even the worst with the company teams who will get sometimes a stress fracture from patting themselves on the back of how wonderful they are. When you're the incumbent, you really are the Casper seat. You really are in a position to win. It's yours to lose. It should be yours to lose. But to have some sort of objective means and a structured analytical means to challenge, to make sure you stay sharp is really pretty critical. And, and frankly, learning from the sins, especially, I think the, I'll, I'll kind of do a two for one sale there. When you win or lose, I think, and again, when you win or lose, get that debrief done. Even if you win. Why did I win? Do I really know why I won? Honestly, do I really know? I might think I know why I won, but I could be dead wrong. Get those debriefs. And, and that takes time, right? The debriefs, looking at geo protests, and studying the trend line of why you win and why you lose. And then forcing that into the capture process and how you do reviews. Okay, well, in the last 10 bids we did for this agency, we won, let's say, we won three, we lost seven. What was the trend in all of these? To not, to not learn from that tuition bill you paid, those tuition bills are expensive, is really, I think, shameful. And if you continue to lose, that's on you. That's 100% your own fault. I have no sympathy for that whatsoever. If you choose to ignore data that's sitting you there and staring you in the face, to me, I, I have no sympathy for those companies at all. They should continue to be bidding fodder for everyone else to, hey, we did competition. These guys had no chance in hell, but we did competition, sure. To not capitalize on that data, just like we capitalize on data we collect on a routine basis to make sure we get smarter and better. We have to be a learning organization. So I think that the moral of the story there is to use those debriefs, win or lose, to really learn why you won or why you lost. And then see the trend line. Don't just think it's all one size fits all. Customize it to different agencies. Look at your competitors. The data is there. That's not the problem. It's the problem is putting the effort into actually, you know, thinking about it, learning from it, uh, which is disguised as hard work. But no one ever got successful anywhere by just being lucky. That was Brian Lindholm of Fed Savvy Strategies, helping us shine a light on what really goes into winning in the government market 
as well as losing. You can find Project 38 in two places, the Podcatcher app of your choice and the landing page on our website, washingtontechnology.com slash podcasts. I'm Ross Wilkers, and thanks for listening.